a chief compliance officer's ability to deliver on that AML strategy will boost business performance and the underlying share value and not create a bottleneck. Welcome to the Innovation and in Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I have with me Simon Winchester. Simon has some really an interesting background and more importantly for the compliance professional or other business leader listening to this, a lot of experience with products and services in the AML space. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, AML has become even more important and more ubiquitous, certainly in the United States and the United Kingdom and literally across the world. So with that incredibly long-winded introduction, Simon, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here and thank you for that introduction. So could you tell us a little bit about your professional background, Simon? Sure. So I've always been connected to technology within the financial services industry, but for the best part of the last decade, that has had a specific focus on identity. In the early part of my career at Jumio, I was responsible for leading growth across the EMEA region. And then for the last two years in, in my current role as vice president of advanced technologies, my responsibilities now are to build the go-to-market strategies for newly acquired technologies within Jumio, and then to drive the adoption on a global scale. So recent acquisitions include our AML solution, which is, of course is focused here today. And then also earlier this year, we acquired a, a German-based KYC fraud and compliance platform called Forstop. Well, it sounds like you're well-suited to follow at least the U.S. administration's lead as all of this has become more important, and I should say it's not just the U.S. administrations, certainly the United Kingdom and Western Europe and our joint response to the Russian invasion, and maybe we can touch on that later. So tell us about some of the automated schemes that you've seen criminals use, and have they become more ubiquitous since the invasion, or is it just a really a continuation of the things you'd seen over the past couple of years? I think it's a continuation, but obviously, you know, recent events have, have certainly had an impact. I'm sure, as your listeners will know, money laundering is a, a broad and, and complex topic. However, at basic level, the goal of money laundering is for criminals to take illicitly gained funds and then turn them into legitimate cash or assets, which are, of course, ideally free of suspicion. So sitting at the core of this criminal process are three themes. It's placement, layering, and integration. Placement is moving dirty money into a financial instrument to start the process of, of cleaning. Layering is hiding that money. It's you know, multiple small transactions which are, are made in different markets or across borders in an attempt to conceal the source of funds through a, a convoluted audit trail that make it you know, basically impossible to determine the illegal nature of that money. And then there's the third part integration, which following the layering process, money is obviously then returned back to the, the criminal organization through legitimate transactions. So surrounding this core are different processes such as smurfing or, or structuring flow through of funds, creating full invoices, trade-based money laundering, such as investing in stocks and shares or, 
or buying property or art, often internationally and inflated value. I mean, ultimately, there are countless methods that criminals are using to disguise their actions. And to give you an indication of the scale of the problem, it's expected that two to five percent of global GDP or two trillion dollars annually is connected to money laundering. So if you take that, we then need to to factor in the environment in which we live in today, which is even more digitally centric than ever before. And that's expedited by things like the pandemic. But a study by J.D. Power Associates states that nearly 40 percent of all account openings are now digital. And that's growing at at a 20 percent year on year rate. And this isn't just the millennials or or Gen Z. A separate report by the Ike Group showed that 71 percent of U.S. respondents are willing to open a bank account online and 54 percent of over 65 year olds are saying that they're comfortable with digital onboarding and banking. And and that's a higher number than within the 18 to 25 year old category. So you take that digital world, you add globalization, and whether it be traditional financial institutions or neobanks, fintechs, MSBs, they're all leaning on digital transformation to remove barriers from their business and grow internationally, which is obviously great news for the industry. But to conclude that the not so good is that the criminals are exploiting that broader demographic and those diminishing borders, the growing globalization to launder their money. And it's making it incredibly more difficult to detect. And so we end up with this cat and mouse game between regulators, AML legislation, the criminal behavior itself, and then solution providers like Jumio, who are in the middle looking to facilitate more effective compliance programs. Simon, one of the ongoing discussions in the United States is when a company should report suspicious activity. It's a little firmer, I think, in the United Kingdom and in uh, the EU as well, but that discussion is ongoing here in the United States. What do you feel, if we kind of leave the GDPR aspect out of it with mandatory reporting, when should an enterprise report suspicious activity and what would be the typical process you would advocate or counsel customers or clients on? So the the suspicious activity report is sort of the end game. So you you have the criminal activity that we've we've just discussed. Then there's the extensive monitoring and and compliance tools in the middle looking to detect this activity, with the result being a suspicious activity report or a SAR. When an organization uncovers suspicious activity through the monitoring process, that's when they must raise a SAR to the regulator. Typically, this is pretty well-defined. And typically they have an organization will have 30 calendar days from when a business notices suspicious activity. If there's no suspect identified, then there could be an additional 30 days granted to file that SAR. If the activity is ongoing, then an institution should file an updated SAR every 90 days or less. And then SARs must be kept on file for five years after they have been filed. So, you know, it's pretty detailed and specific. With some examples being of when a a business must file a SAR, it could be anything connected to suspected terrorist financing, illegal activity, insider trading, and this could involve any amount of money. There's no minimum there. If a suspect is identified, then also a SAR must be filed with an aggregate transaction value of $5,000. If there's no suspect, then it's an aggregate transaction value totaling $25,000 or more. So ultimately, it's a very complex process. Staying on top 
of compliance mandates to update the regulators in such a defined manner, it's a priority for financial institutions. But doing so demands resource and investment, the right technologies to be deployed in a business. And then a side note to the value of SARS, it goes beyond just reporting to a regulator. A key focus is obviously detecting money laundering and, and the terrorist financing. However, SAR intelligence has been instrumental in many other ways. And, and that could be locating sex offenders, tracing murder suspects, showing the movement of children being trafficked to work in the sex industry. The data captured through the SAR process helps identify geographical or industry trends, spot vulnerabilities within a particular sector or, or a product. And ultimately, help law enforcement agencies better understand criminal strategies to recover the proceeds of crime, to hopefully reduce the impact of crime, and perhaps most importantly, prevent future incidents such as a, a terrorist attack occurring. And I'm pretty passionate about this stuff, and hopefully that's clear. But there are some really bad people and really bad things that happen in this world. And yeah, it's great to be part of a solution that's trying to make a difference. Beyond the reporting requirements for suspicious activity, what are some of the key AML regulations that you counsel clients on? And what are some of the specific requirements? And if I could even add another component, how does the Jumio solution help a client tie those requirements to their work and then any uh, obligations they may have going forward? Yeah, well, it really does depend. You know, Jumio is a global business. We work with businesses around the world, and it depends on where you are in the world. But AML regulations are, are driven by local enforcement bodies. So in the US, you know, financial institutions are, are regulated by FinCEN, which is part of the US Treasury Department. Here in sunny UK, we have the, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, and NCA, National Crime Agency. And basically, these regulators will typically take guidance from international standards set by someone like the Financial Ac Action Task Force, or FATF, which is an intergovernmental organization and functions as a global AML watchdog. To kind of give you a little bit more detail on that, on this side of the pond, we have the EU AML directives that help shape policy and provide guidance. So last summer, the sixth EU AML directive came into effect, which not only bought an increased frequency of regulatory updates to KYC and AML legislation, but it also brought with it a stricter obligation and greater reach into industries which were previously not subjected to such severe AML protocol. And some examples of that, I mean, probably the, most, the biggest example is firstly, the directive defined an additional 22 predicate offences for money laundering but also to include cyber, environmental, tax crime, human trafficking, murder, the list goes on. And, uh, and a predicate offence is, is being a crime, which is a component of a larger crime. And clearly, this is an impressive level of detail that's being introduced, and it's designed to close loopholes. In addition to that, the directive expanded the number of offences that fall under money laundering, such as aiding and abetting. So criminals that are convicted of aiding and abetting, they now face the same penalties as those that directly benefit from money laundering. There's tied to focus on cryptocurrencies and, and crypto exchanges to act as obliged entities, and, and they now face the same AML and, and CFT regulations. So do estate agents and tax advisors and art dealers. Essentially, 
what we're seeing is the what I probably like to call the, the continued expanded reach of AML regulators, kind of octopus tentacles that, you know, if you will, are reaching into new areas of industry and also with lower financial limits that are now required to be monitored. Again, in kind of conclusion, that you know, clearly traditional financial institutions and beyond face scrutiny by all levels of law enforcement around the world. And the consequences of that are, well, you know, as an example in fintech space, the average spend on AML compliance is about $14 million per year. And this is a significant investment that requires significant planning across the business. And that needs to be driven by the exec team down. And this is the daunting reality of compliance leads and why they turn to businesses like Jumian. Simon, you've talked to us a little bit about the problem of money laundering literally across the world. And you've detailed from us some of the regulations both in a general and, and specific aspect, I'd now like to turn to what I can call the solution. What do you see as key components of not only an effective, but a successful AML program? Or is it simply you are whacking a mole or trying to stay one step ahead of the bad guys? I would probably say it's a, a healthy dose of, of both. An AML program should be well-defined and, and less mole whacking, but you know that's the world we live in, to be honest. But to kind of describe the components of a successful AML program in a bit more detail. Well, there's a few different components, but at the top of the tree, the business must have a dedicated compliance officer. So that could be in the USA, the BSA, or over here, more likely the MLRO or, or the AML officer. And that individual is tasked with overseeing day-to-day AML compliance and should have a detailed knowledge of the BSA policy. And they're responsible for creating the compliance program staff training, monitoring the compliance and scheduling required testing and reviews of that program. So really, number one, you have to have the right people in the right place. Second, you then need a written risk-based compliance program with comprehensive AML policies and procedures that that are documented. The goal here is to create an approach that identifies and protects your business from financial crime and critically to have the right technology in place to support that documented framework. So you have the right people and you have a well-documented policy in place. And then following that, it's about having the appropriate customer due diligence process. And again, this is to reduce the risk of financial crime, but it's by designing workflows to verify customers, develop risk profiles, develop an accurate picture of a customer's normal and expected behavior which then bleeds into a requirement for a robust transaction monitoring and KY screening tool to detect the suspicious transactional patterns and ultimately allow for that SAR reporting and proactive case management, which we've already talked about. So that's the crux of the program. It's the people, it's the documented policy, tools and workflows to monitor effectively. And then the rest is is ongoing training and periodic independent review. So In addition to onboarding training, a business must provide regular training sessions on AML regulations that include the recent updates and ways to maintain compliance. And then through that periodic independent review of a BSA program, you have to identify risks and course correct. You have to do an audit that should be carried out every 12 to 18 months, or if your company risk profile changes, or if there are any known compliance issues. And yeah, that is essentially the bones of a a successful AML program. 
Salman, I came out of the anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance space. And 10 years ago, anti-money laundering was viewed as either the purview or obligation of financial institutions, banks, or other companies that dealt more with cash. Obviously, that has evolved, particularly when cyber attacks and became more ubiquitous and companies were held ransom. But many non-financial institutions, what we would say in the U.S., a U.S. public company, energy, tech, pharma, hospitals, you name the entity, they don't understand their risks around money laundering. And I wanted to ask, when you have conversations with non-financial institutions and literally anywhere uh, Jumia does business, do they are not, they now understanding the need for a robust AML program as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think there's always going to be the differential between a financially regulated business and someone that doesn't have the same level of regulation or regulatory requirement. And again, you know, historically in EMEA, that would relate to say the crypto world. And I believe it's an ongoing conversation in terms of regulations in the crypto space in the US. But even marketplaces, sharing economy platforms, they still touch money, they still touch payments. And therefore, whether historically they were as aware or not, or with the increased kind of reach, as I've mentioned, of, of regulation, they are now becoming absolutely aware of, of their obligations and their need to be compliant. And I think one of the things that has helped drive that home are the consequences or the penalties that businesses can face if they are not compliant. And that can be huge fines. You know, last year, there was $5.4 billion in AML compliance fines, with the average fine being about $34.4 million, to be precise. There's things like reputational damage that could either be a company or the personal brand of a, of a chief compliance officer. You know, customers rely on trust and safety. Businesses can face regulatory restrictions. You know, they can limit the ability to operate across you know, states in the US or, or even launch internationally. In the most severe cases, you know, you could lose your license. You can stop being able to do business. That can close someone down. And then, you know, maybe more, most daunting of all, there's criminal prosecution. And for those that are failing to have an effective compliance program, they can face jail time. It was literally just today I read an article about a company that's in the financial space, a company called Ping Express. It's a U.S. remittance business where the CEO and COO have just been sentenced to 27 months in jail for failing to have the appropriate money laundering controls and, and actually illegally remitting about $160 million to Nigeria. So, I mean, of course, there's the jail time that's now being considered. But in addition to that, the business itself is on a five-year probation and was fined half a million dollars. So you can see that there's some very real consequences for getting this wrong. And again, yet another reason why AML compliance is a hot topic at board level and a critical part of a, of a business strategy for those financial institutions and further afield. One of the things that the chief compliance officer was known as, hopefully not so much anymore, is Dr. No from the land of no, that they are the Department of Business Interruption and that they will bottleneck businesses. I believe that properly articulated, a effective compliance program actually equates to greater business efficiencies. And once again, I'm coming from anti-corruption background. Are you and your colleagues having those same conversations? And do you see the use of AML tools uh, such as Jimio 
as really yeah. a way to have more efficient business operations going forward? That's a great question. Tom, I completely agree with you. In my opinion, chief compliance officers are the catalyst for the growth and innovation, not an organizational bottleneck. You know, we've spoken about $14 million being the average spend on AML compliance in, in fintech, you know, the potential for literally billions of dollars in fines, and, and of course, the real threat of criminal prosecution and jail time, like I just gave that example. If those were the consequences of me having a bad day at work, I would scrutinize every part of my organization as well. But I think chief compliance officers, you know, they can get the raw deal. And the impact that they bring to an organization needs to be flipped 180 degrees. So rather than being a bottleneck with the right AML technologies, and compliance experts, an effective AML program, a CCO and their team can 100% drive shareholder value through organizational growth. And that could be via first mover advantage with a new product launch or speed to market with expedited international expansion. It could be the ability to adapt to new regulation with a few keystrokes rather than engineering resource and service disruption. And all of those examples create a strong ROI on compliance investment and are consequences of an effective AML program owned by the chief compliance officer. And further to this, you know, speaking of investment, if a CCO invests in the right AML technologies, then there can also be you know, significant cost reductions by removing multiple service providers, multiple commercial agreements, silo technologies. And instead, this can be replaced by you know, the economies of scale from an end-to-end -end compliance platform for both the purposes of onboarding and ongoing monitoring, so KYC and AML. So lastly, and again, probably a passionate response to this question, because I think it's you know, unjust on the CCOs of this world. I believe a CCO can prevent the excessive financial loss that, that can accompany AML fines. They can grow brand advocacy and reputation, and they can also maintain customer loyalty through trust and safety. The assurance that a customer's money is safe with that business. And these are those boardroom conversations again. Without doubt, in my opinion, a chief compliance officer's ability to deliver on that AML strategy will boost business performance and the underlying share value and not create a bottleneck. Simon, that's the third time you've mentioned the board of directors. I was wondering if you could give a few words about what you see as the board role in an effective AML compliance program, or perhaps I could flip it. When you, you and your team are brought in to counsel a board, what do you tell a board is their obligation in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think the board is ultimately responsible for setting that strategy or help setting that strategy and then trickling down through the exec team into the actual, you know, focusing on AML, into the AML officers, creation of a, of a program, all the way down to an analyst that's actually acting on a day-to-day -day transaction and, and monitoring for this suspicious activity. They are there to protect customers, but they're also there to protect shareholder value, to keep the business out of the headlines for the wrong reasons, to grow trust and advocacy. And again, I think it's the board that is helping to empower the likes of, of a chief compliance officer to be able to go and do their job and invest in the right technologies, invest the appropriate amount of money to make sure that they're getting the best amount of return for their investment. In terms of how Jumio 
help organizations kind of detect the suspicious activity and to, and to meet those regulatory obligations set by regulators and obviously focused on by the board. Well, look, I've touched on it already, but major headache for compliance officers is the potential need for those multiple different service providers that create the siloed systems, the solution gaps, the challenges around operational efficiency. And as we've discussed today, AML and the wider identity landscape is a real complex environment. In addition, and you mentioned Russia at the beginning of the conversation, you know, world events can cause regulations to be unexpectedly tweaked or updated, and this can have an immediate impact across your entire organization or, or maybe just certain geographies where you, you operate. So the new Russian sanctions that have come into place following the, the invasion of Ukraine, the downstream effect of that new ruling means a physical change to an AML typology in order to maintain compliance. And then to make it even harder, this would be relevant to preventing both the onboarding of new customers that are now sanctioned, but also the need to remediate the existing customer base to stop doing business where required. And, and again, that takes time, energy, and, and effort. So with legacy on-premise AML solutions, this would require engineers on sites, hardwiring changes, you know, potential delays in market launches, or, or perhaps even the need to postpone onboarding of new customers, which to the, the board is an absolute no-no. And in comparison, as a pretty granular example, I guess, Jumo has a vast library of AML rules that were built by experts. We lean on industry best practices. And these rules that are deployed as part of our platform can be modified by in-house compliance teams in real time to match exact business needs following a policy change, such as you know, the new sanctions on Russians. So the, the point here is we are able to enable customers to not even break stride when reacting to situations that require a change to meet a regulatory obligation. And then finally, kind of just taking a step back, Jumio is an, an overarching identity platform providing end-to-end -end compliance. It's not just a point solution that's covering one aspect such as AML in isolation. So we support businesses at the point of initial customer onboarding right through the customer lifecycle with continuous ongoing monitoring for, for KYC, KYB, which is, is not a, a topic that we've covered here today, know your business, not just know your, your consumer or your customer. And of course, AML. So as a single point of service, customers can rely on Jumio and react to regulatory or business changes in an instant, or they could tweak a risk signal in, in one part of the workflow, which has an instant ripple effect across the entire connected program, which ultimately you know, helps drive greater operational efficiencies and performance for the board. And of course, perhaps most importantly, will help maintain that regulatory compliance. Simon, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on Jumio, on yourself, or really any of the topics we've touched on today, what would be the best place for them to go? There's our website. You can direct uh, listeners to www.jumio.com. You can find us on LinkedIn. Twitter is twitter.com forward slash Jumio or at Jumio. Of course, you can reach out to me directly at simon.winchester at jumio.com. But one way or another, there's more information there and, and we'll be happy to assist with any further questions. 
If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.